Aloha and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Got Your Six podcast. This podcast brings together current service members and veteran high performers to share their methods, strategies, and ideas delivered in an informative and most importantly, actionable way that'll help you lead yourself and those around you from the battlefield to the border. Coming to you every episode, I'm your host, Tony Nash, and into the breach. Nothing mentioned on this podcast is an endorsement or opinion of the Department of Defense. I got your six, we got your back. Got your six, we got your back. Got your six, we got your back. I got your six. Sixers, today we are joined. You might not know his face, but you definitely know his work. Steve Leonard, the creator of Doctor and Man, is here with us today. We're going to dive into his new book, To Boldly Go, touch on the science fiction and leadership connections. I'm just super excited. Thank you, sir, so much for being here today. Hey, Tony, thanks a lot for uh, for having me. I, I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while and your work in general. And you know, it was a dream come true to have you reach out and ask. And I'm just glad we did it and surprised we haven't done it sooner. Absolutely. As we said before the show, right? The kids always say real recognizes real. And that's something I think people say when they feel like they're too old to actually say it, but want to say it anyway. So the new book is out. Where did you come up with the idea? So believe it or not, this whole this book has a genesis at, uh, at the military academy. I've been aligned and been working with uh, the Modern War Institute there for about five years. And I'm a senior fellow there. And uh, one of the other fellows, uh, Mick Ryan, Major General Mick Ryan of the Australian Army, he and I were having dinner a couple of years ago, listening to General Williams talk and uh, leaned across the table and said, mate, I have an idea. And it was one of those things where I'm a big idea guy. So I'm like, hey, let's talk it. And, and he laid it out. He said, we ought to do this. And uh, it just grew from there. I sat down with a, with a buddy of mine, John Klug, my co-editor, who's also a USMA grad. And said, hey, what do you think? You want to want to be part of this? And he's also a huge science fiction nerd. So it was really an easy choice for him. The idea was leadership and, and strategy and you know conflict. And we weren't sure how a publisher would receive that. And we literally got to go with the first publisher we sent a draft to. A draft, it wasn't even a draft manuscript. It was a draft proposal. Hey, this is a big idea we have. What do you think? And Email back the same day, yes, we're in, let's do this. And then it was just a matter of building a team of people. And you know, we uh, put a lot of effort into tapping into our own personal networks, uh, people that we knew, uh, friends that we've made, people that we've worked with before, because there were two other books that kind of preceded this, Strategy Strikes Back and Winning Westeros, with, which were largely built around the Modern War Institute team. But everybody kind of moved on from those, and we still had some energy left. So let's take this idea of Mick Ryan's, and let's see what we could do with it and push it out into some areas where we hadn't tried before. And one of those was science fiction beyond the, the Star Wars universe. So let's just do science fiction in general. Let's see if we can get a really broad group of writers with, with a lot of different experiences. And so we ended up with a cruise of like half male, half female literally from that they stretch from New Zealand to the West Coast of the United States with you know people that were in England, people that were serving in Mali at the time, people were people all over the globe writing on this. So it's it's a rare rare thing and I suppose just to be able to pull something like that together, but also to do it during a time of COVID because the idea pre-existed the the outbreak of the pandemic. And 
we did all the coordination, all the meetings, all everything right in the midst of the pandemic. But that's it in a nutshell. And then just give people the freedom to be able to write what they want to write. And that was something that was really important to us. We add a little structure up front, but then give the writers the absolute freedom to pick their own source material and, and their own lessons within each one of the bins that we picked. And we had six bins overall. There's a certain amount of risk to that. But I think the reward comes on the backside when you start to read what's in the book and you see some of the amazing stuff. What happens when you don't tell somebody how to do it, but here's what I need. And you have the absolute freedom to write what you want. And then people just produce this magnificent work. And you talking authors that may range from, you know, an Australian army major to Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z people who are, are major players in the think tank circuit to people that are working in the Pentagon. And the end result has just been terrific. There's two things I really want to dive in there. One is you're essentially making commanders intent. Here's a loose structure, go forth and do it. But as a commander too, you also know that risk is a potential catalyst that fuels opportunity, right? I know we talked kind of went back and forth on LinkedIn about Captain Kirk and what he feels about risk. And it really really underlines that to an extent that I don't think a lot of people understand, at least without kind of seeing this now in action with a framework that you presented. I'm glad that you you pointed that out because I think some people don't absolutely understand that whole idea that with a little bit of guidance and commander's intent, um, there's, there's almost nothing that you can't accomplish if you allow people the freedom to be who they are and to think for themselves. You're always going to find people who can't operate within commander's intent, or you're going to find people who require an excessive amount of guidance. But I've always been a believer that if I have to tell you what to do and how to do it, then I can just do it myself. I don't need to waste that time or effort to try to get you in the right direction. If you just can't, if you can't figure it out, I'll find somebody else who can. And I applied this, we applied this, the, that same philosophy with the book. And, and I think that's just kind of important. One is the quickest way to turn off a bunch of independent minds that are really capable people and, and hugely talented is to tell them how to write and what, you know, here's exactly what I need from you. I need you to watch this episode of Deep Space Nine and, you know, tell me about, you know, with the quark and the wormhole and, you know, what he did here. No, people, that, that just shuts people down immediately. So it's just a broad guidance and intent. I, here's a deadline. I need something by this date. And you tell me what you want to write about. You tell me where you want to focus and that's it. And I would say that worked for about 95% of the pieces. And a couple of pieces came back and we had to work with the authors. But when the other 95% are on target the first time, you know, hey, you're in a good place. And that allows you to have the freedom of maneuver, really, to spend all that extra time with somebody else that really could use some help, or maybe they got writer's block, or they just, they're just not inspired, but you know they can write. You just kind of got to help them along. And that philosophy applies well just about anywhere, that if you can get with the right people and, and you give them that latitude and maneuver space, that they'll impress you most of the time. Absolutely. I mean, you can speak to this on an array of different aspects. As you look to, you know, when you were a cartoonist, everyone starts with a blank piece of paper. How you go and form that to, you know, create jokes that, you know, we understand in the military. It wasn't you just showed up one day and you're this great cartoonist. You had to iterate and get with people that were better than you. That's essentially mentorship 101. Oh, absolutely. 
the whole cartoon thing was a freakish little thing. Um, you know, I have zero artistic talent. I couldn't, I couldn't draw a cartoon if I had to, which is why you see stick figures. And the underlying joke in there is that all those stick figures are created in PowerPoint because where do we spend 90% of our time in PowerPoint? So it was that little joke. If you paid close attention that, yeah, yeah, all these things are built into PowerPoint. And then the source material was, I'm very much a believer in, you just have to be patient and allow the ideas to, to, to present themselves. And if you, if you're patient and you let that happen, then the situation will always resolve itself. You'll see what you need to see. And it's funny that you bring even bring any of this up because I uh, I had a piece come out last week in my point of departure blog that was about General Odierno and the passing of General Odierno. And he actually had a character and did for about seven years. The character debuted after we were going through a series of briefings with him over Doctrine 2015 and God knows whatever else. But he had a certain animated style to himself. And by this point, I'm a colonel. I'm the G3 of Fort Leavenworth. And colonels aren't supposed to misbehave during these meetings. But I would watch him and he would wave his arms around. He would, he would gesture. And I thought, my God. That's just like when Larry David does um, George Steinbrenner on Seinfeld, because you always saw the back of Steinbrenner he'd wave his arms around. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's the chief. That's the chief. And then I bring the two of them together, you know, except you get a ball headed character with four stars on his shoulders. And, and he would have to deal with the ass hattery that exists within the Pentagon and how a normal person in his role would deal with it. Of course, you'd wave your hands around. You know, how could you do this? Why would you, what, you know, why do I have to put up with this? And, you know, that, that was all him. And I thought it was pretty clever and I didn't give it much of a thought. And as I tell in the piece that I wrote, uh, we were sitting down to talk about something one day, and I was only kind of half-heartedly paying attention. And he makes a comment, none of what's said in this meeting better show up in a cartoon. And I looked up, and he was looking at me. And I'm like, holy <laughs> hell, he knows. Like, oh, my God. I mean, how could you know? And I suppose if you paid any attention to the cartoon, you'd put two and two together. And he's like, that guy's writing about me. And I was, but I didn't think the chief of all people would have ever noticed that. And he did. And it was just this little epiphany that, oh, my, you know, I've done this cartoon for a few years. People in seats of power actually pay attention to what we do. And it's not just the cartoon. It's other things. And those moments when they hit you, when you think you're just this anonymous major, you're just going, going about his day-to-day -day job. And then one day, the chief of staff of the Army stands next to you and say, hey, Tony, how you been? And you realize, hey, he knows who I am. How do you know who I am? What did I do? And you know, oh, Tony, I was reading that article that you wrote during CGSC about, you know, how stupid all chiefs were, and it really struck a chord with me. But it's it's like those little things in life that uh, you're never as anonymous as you think you are, which is always a good lesson to teach everybody, especially people who hang out on social media and think that nobody knows who they are. Somebody always knows who you are. And one of the important lessons in life then is you're never as anonymous as you think you are. And, you know, and anonymity is just a veil and people can see through it. You may not be able to see out. People can see through it and they know who you are. It's always a good one to take to the bank afterwards, too, because you don't want to be the person who gets surprised that the chief actually knows who you are and what you've been writing about him. You know, those are good lessons to share, too. I'm glad you really brought that up because that is something sometimes we overlook. We're, we get so focused on the day-to-day -day grind. We never know who's watching. And it completely takes you from left field or right field 
when it does hit you and people are like, hey, I see you. We recognize what you're doing. Either good or bad. Good or bad. Hope it's, yeah. <laughs> I prefer it to be good if I can, if I can I have agree. any control over that. I never want to be the guy who, who shows up in the news and they shake their head and they're like, that guy, that guy. Well, whoever gave him a microphone? You know, yeah, I don't ever want to be that guy. Now with the book done, and it's going to start to grow, which is really cool talking to different authors and they, they talk about how their books kind of grow beyond what they originally set it out to do. What really is like kind of your biggest takeaway having to go through, and like you said, mentor some writers, kind of provide that commander's intent and then see what the next evolution, is there something you took away from that whole kind of iteration? I took a lot away from the experiences. Of, there was actually three different books that I worked on, three different anthologies before this. I, I mentioned Strategy Strikes Back and Winning Westeros. And then we worked uh, with the Military Writers Guild. We produced uh, Why We Write, which was supposed to inspire potential military writers or really any writer. It's like, hey, what, what drives you to write? And you take away lessons from each one of those. Like the, the first two books, the importance of at least being able to provide minimal guidance. Those were great projects, but I think that the editor, the, edit, the editors and the editorial staff had to deal with, we didn't do any bending up front. So we said broadly, we're going to do leadership and strategy, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, well, give me some framework to work with. And so what we did then was when we moved into To Boldly Go and laid out, hey, here are the six bins, uh, if you want to call them bins, but the six areas we're going to focus on leadership. And here's what we're talking about uh, strategy. Here's what we're talking about conflict. Here's what we're talking about, you know, the dark side of leadership. Here's what we're talking about. It was detailed guidance, but broad enough that allowed people the freedom to write within those. And then what I drew from why we write was the importance of narrowing the aperture so we put out a broad call for papers with why we write. And I think we had like 300 submissions. So we had enough for like two huge tomes. And then you had to whittle that down. And so for us, we discussed a call for papers. And I nixed that on day one and said, no, we're going to handpick the people we write and we're going to work with them. And, and that way, you know, it's a select group of people, but it will allow us to, to really narrow that aperture to a point where we're only getting the input that we need. And we don't have a lot of extra articles or extra chapters left over. And picking enough people that we had some room for attrition on the backside, which we lost, uh, we lost a couple of writers, uh, one to a contract uh, dispute and one just, just didn't produce a chapter. But that was all built in. I figured, hey, we're going to give ourselves about 10% failure rate just, just in the event that something bad happens. And, and that allowed us to work through those going forward. Because there will be a sequel to this. I just don't know when it's going to come out. And the subject matter will be slightly different. Everything that we tried with this one worked. And so going forward, I think it's just tweaking the formula. Maybe giving ourselves a little bit more time in terms of editing. I think the publisher wanted everybody to submit their chapters uh, on like December 31st with the, uh, the book being due January 31st to them. And realizing, you know, you have like 300 pages of hard editing to do in 30 days. And it was a grind. And next time we do this, we're going to give ourselves more time. The other thing was, uh, one of the things that we tried to do that's a common criticism is there weren't enough women in the first couple of books that we worked on. You'd get like, you know, 28 male authors and two female authors. And so we, we said from the get-go, we're going to do 50-50. And that way, I wanted to ensure a good split there. And then the international piece came in 
you end up with a much more diverse view of things. And I think that helps because the, the women authors, my God, the things they wrote about were just absolutely fantastic. Gender equity was a big one that came out. Those writers just brought a different perspective that I think we would have lost had we not had we had a a purely male group of writers. And in the same sense, bringing in authors from all around the world, you also got a different perspective there. You brought in people from other services. So, you know, we had Navy writers, we had Air Force writers, we had Army writers. I think we might have had a Marine at one point. You just get this just this great mix of people and trying to, with that formula going forward, how do you make that even better? And I'm not sure there's a way to make it any better than we already did, uh, but we're going to try. And every time I've mentioned the next idea, and I won't say it here, but every time I mention the next idea, I have offers. Hey, I want to write. I mean, it's that kind of thing. You know, science fiction is a good bed to work from. If you think in your mind, if I had to pick another genre to write from, what would it be? So, like, I will tell you that the next one is going to be fun. Um, Preliminary go from the publisher. I've got to lock that in in the next 30 days or so and attack it. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to try to go for the same kind of publication time frame. So around this time again in two years, if we're, if we're lucky. And I think that we're going to have about, oh, at least six movies come out in this genre between now and the time we publish. So there'll be lots of source material. Six as you heard it here first. It's out there. We'll talk about this in a future episode, but... You heard it here on the Gotcha Six podcast first. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna see leadership and character and and values, you know, human conflict, the whole thing. It's all gonna come together. Having that belief and that building that habit of diversity and bringing in those people and that iteration is something people sometimes lose sight of. I know Joe Barley talked about this in a previous episode here, where you know taking the time to reflect on what went well and what went wrong. And that kind of leads into my next question of, you know, you've had a lot of success in a lot of different areas. Where has a failure been that's ultimately led to a success in your life? This is a a really good one. It's one that I share with a lot of people. I go back to when I was a field grade, probably the one thing that I suffered from the most is a lack of patience. That that might seem like an oddball thing to say, but it was, uh, and for somebody who has three kids, I should have had patience and then some. But what, what, what it was, was I worked for somebody who I think struggled to lead during my uh, KD time. Instead of having the emotional intelligence and the patience to help him work through the challenges that he was dealing with, it, we almost had a conflict between us. I was impatient. I saw things before he did. And he was waiting, like say for us, he would, he would wait for the, a situation to develop more before he was comfortable making decisions. And, and this kind of gets to our discussion of risk uh, w- before we came online was I'm a, I have a much more comfortable relationship with risk. I don't gamble, but I can look at a situation, I can assess the risk, and I learn to, to deal with that risk in such a way that I can maximize the, the, the chances of success, the likelihood of success by addressing risk in different ways. And, and being comfortable with ambiguity as well as risk, I can go in a certain direction and I know I'm, I'm going to be okay. He wasn't like that. And so I would see a situation and say, you know, we can do this. Uh, no, I need more information. I can't make a decision. And I, and I would, you know, that decision might wait days or weeks and it would absolutely drive me insane. I worked with uh, my counterpart, who's now a three-star, 
was much more patient and much more understanding and much more adept at managing that personality than I was. And I walked away and for the longest time I blamed him. And, and, you know, that the struggles that we had were because he couldn't make decisions or he could, and he couldn't, but there were other things. And really it took me, we're looking in and saying, I owned part of that failure because he was somebody who needed senior staff who recognized where he had challenges and helped him work through those challenges rather than somebody, rather than somebody who got uptight about it and just badgered him, make, make a decision, make a decision, make a decision. You make the decision. Okay, fine. I'll make the decision. And, and that wasn't the right thing to do. And like I said, my, my counterpart was far more successful at managing that personality than I was. And so I walked away. And one of the reasons why I, I ended up being much more successful later on in my career was I walked away with that lesson and I learned the importance of managing those personalities because everybody that you work for is going to be a little bit different. And really what they need surrounding them are people who can make them help them make decisions, not make the decisions for them. And all you can do is put yourself in a position where you can do that to the best of your abilities and then help them make those decisions. And, and that's, that, that gives you value as a, as a, uh, as a senior staff officer or as a leader in any role. And that was a lesson I walked away and it was a painful lesson. It's two years of, of being completely frustrated. The harder I pushed him to make decisions, the more he shut down and the, and the more frustrated I'd become and the more I'd push and the further he'd pull away, you know, it was a disaster. And then of course the staff had to deal with us both. And, and I know that made people uncomfortable and uh, just, you know, it was a failure on my part and learning that and being able to say, I can do better allowed me to work at a much higher level with a much greater degree of success because I had learned the humility of not having the patience to help somebody help themselves. And under recognizing too, when you do get into that vicious cycle, how to kind of come out of it. So you're not, you know, going deeper and deeper down that hole. And that's a tremendous lesson to take away. And like you said, that's allowed you to increase your emotional intelligence, your self-awareness, recognizing that a little bit faster uh, because it only takes one time. And then after that, you kind of start to see it faster and faster and faster and faster. This has been great. Before we do wrap up, sir, I do want to kind of close with, and we talked about you know all these different things that you've been able to do throughout your career and life. How do you see that you're better than yesterday? That's a, that's a great question. I'm a really goal-driven guy. Somewhere in this stack of books around here, I have the book, The Atomic Goals. And if you've ever read the book, Atomic Goals, it's not only about goal setting, it's about milestones, it's about stretch goals. So everything in my life is built around goals. So I'll have a goal, I'll have stretch goals, I'll measure those. And so every day that goes by, I know I have improved in some area. I've stopped to reflect take measure of where I'm at and then, and then take a step forward. And and it might be something little. It was a realization today that I think I've walked my dogs every day that it hasn't rained for like almost a year. And that's not a big deal, but you think that's a mile a day with the dog where we spend together, you know, whatever, always reading, always working towards self-improvement and measuring all that, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was Joe or somebody else, Joe Barley or somebody else I talked to about, you know, I'm a fanatic for performance metrics. And so like I, I was out on a run this morning and I come back and I check, you know, the VO2 levels, 
heart rate, all those kinds of things. Am I in the right zone? How long did I stay in that zone? Always looking towards improving in some little area one way or another. And I do this, and and this is something I like to share with people is I've never competed with anybody else. I compete with myself. And it's because if I set the bar against somebody else's performance, it's not going to be high enough and I'm going to sell myself short. So I compete with myself. How do I get better every day? And how do you live life to its fullest? And where's that coffee cup? So my buddy, uh, Sergeant Major Mike Burke sent me this and, and we have a shared philosophy. This is always in pursuit where I did his uh, podcast a couple of months ago. And the philosophy that drives that is, is the same thing that you're talking about. It's how do I know I'm better today than tomorrow? I am always in pursuit of my best self. And that drives everything I do. And I can't tell anybody else what to do, but I strongly encourage that, that tomorrow you should be better than you were today. And then the next day, and then the next day, don't let a day go to waste. Always be better than you were. Always always think about what are you leaving behind for everybody else? What's your legacy? Now, you control all those things. You don't want to be the 80-year-old guy who looks back and says, man, I didn't do anything in life. I want to be the 80-year-old guy who says, man, I'm tired. I'm going to yell at people in the front yard because I've done everything I need to do. You never stop pushing. You never stop trying to be better. You never stop looking for that next challenge. And that is something that I talked to my boss about today. That next challenge is what defines us. You've achieved something. What's the next challenge? How are you going to make yourself better? How are you going to push yourself to your limit? I think as long as you do that, life is fulfilling and you're happy and you just never stop. You're always in pursuit of your best self. And that's, you know, like you said, measure your success by owning your success. Absolutely. I can't think of a better way to say it. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your insight. So excited about the book. And of course, last but certainly not least, Thank you for having our six. Oh, hey, Tony, thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. Sixers, thank you for listening to another episode of the Gotcha Six podcast. If you got something out of this, be a battle buddy. Share it with a friend, pass it along, tell them what you got out of it. If you're listening to us on Apple, make sure you give us a five-star review. Or if you don't like what we're doing, let us know. How can we get better? We're always here to adapt and evolve as this podcast continues to grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, hit that follow button and you'll never miss an episode when we drop new ones every Monday. I don't know what you've been told, Sixers, but the lawyers would like us to remind you that the views, opinions, and comments expressed on the Got Your Six podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests to include current and previous Department of Defense employees and should in no way be considered the opinions of or endorsements on behalf of the Department of Defense or any of its components, divisions, contractors, or other current and previous staff members.